Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. But he says, instead, for the food which endures to everlasting life. What food endures to everlasting life? He'll go on to tell us, which the Son of Man will give you because the Father has set his seal on him. He's saying, put your focus on the spiritual, take it off of the natural, and embrace the gift of everlasting life. In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Bread of Life. We will be looking at John chapter 6 in its entirety. A lot goes on in this chapter, including Jesus feeding 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and his proclamation that he is the bread that comes down from heaven. So let's listen in. We've seen here in John's gospel a well-established pattern. Jesus will either teach some radical mind boggling things, and then he'll follow it with some signs and wonders, some miracles that only he can do to affirm and confirm those things. Or he'll work some miracles and he'll follow them with some mind boggling teaching. We're gonna get that view today in chapter six. We'll look at the entirety of it, but it breaks into two sections. First two miracles that actually are, well, more than two it turns out, and then his teaching related to those things. So John 6, the bread of life, begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Then one of his disciples, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? It's called the Sermon on the Mount, but John doesn't share the sermon. He follows up the sermon with the things that took place after. Matthew, of course, does record the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It began much as this does, seeing the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them. And we know that Jesus was always moved with compassion. He didn't just feel empathy or feel sympathy. He moved and dealt with the needs at hand as only he can. Well, move with compassion. He taught them, he healed them. And when all that was over, it was getting late and people were hungry. And so he poses a question to Philip. We just read it, seeing that multitude. He says, where are we gonna buy bread that all these may eat? But this he said to test him, verse six, for he himself knew what he would do. Let me say two things. First, Jesus always knows what he's gonna do. And I've noticed in my many, many years of walking with him now, he never needs my advice. He does sometimes ask me, so what do you think we should do here? And then I tell him, well, there's not much we can do because I'm a lot like these guys. And then he says, well, let's do something impossible. 
And I'm like, that's your world, Lord. But anyway, we have these conversations. I hope you have them too. It means you're not just telling God your needs, but waiting for him to talk to you about what he'd like to accomplish in and through your life. Well, anyway, he knew what he was going to do, but it says he tested, he tested Philip. It's important because while the enemy sets traps for us, he tempts us, he accuses us, he lies to us and lies about us. Everything he does is to trip us up and take us down, to leave us in despair because, well, he tempts us and we fall and then we're filled with condemnation. The only cure for all that is to, well, know what God says about it. All are tempted and Unlike Jesus, we do sometimes yield to temptation. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Wouldn't it be awesome if that could be said of us? Tempted in all ways, yet without sin. I'd like to just get through one day without sinning. That would be a major accomplishment. And, and, and by the way, if you're like, well, I've done that. Yeah, now you're all proud over it, so you're in sin. So it, it's, it's a trap, you see. So, so here, here's what happens. He's testing him because he wants to teach him. And that's why he tests us, to teach us to trust him, to depend on him, to well, build our faith and our hope in him. James will later write, because James was there. He saw these things. He heard these things. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says that trials produce patience. And by the way, didn't know this when I was first saved. I used to pray for patience. I found that led to trials. So now I don't pray for that anymore. But what I do know is that, that patience is a virtue. Love is patient and kind. And I, by nature, impatient and unkind. I know you probably don't see me that way, but you mostly see me here where I'm on my best behavior. And even here, I say things I shouldn't. And listen, I just want to say, I'm always trying to be for real with you, but I don't need to air all my dirty laundry and don't need to hear about all yours. Because, because God's working in us and he allows the temptations of the enemy and then he overrides them and turns it for good. He allows his own test and brings them so that we can learn patience and in the midst of that, we can be perfected. And that word literally means to be complete, fully fit for the work he's called us to. It would be like if we were clay and he was a potter when he fully finished the product and then he put it in the fire and we're like, oh, no, no, not the fire. The fire hardens the clay so it becomes something useful so it can contain those things God wants to pour out on people. So Peter, who also was there, will write in this, we greatly rejoice. First Peter 1, 6, for you note takers, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, listen, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus must be genuine. It's not enough that, that well, we really, 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 really believe. 
because people really, really, really believe and embrace lies. But faith in him should be productive and it must be genuine faith. How do we know our faith is genuine? I wasn't the first to say it. I'm sure you've heard it. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. So our faith is demonstrated to be genuine in the midst of the test. This is one of those many tests. Philip answers him and Philip's quick with math apparently. He says 200 days pay, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. It's important to note, Jesus is never looking to give us just enough to sustain us or get us by. He always pours out his blessings on us. And when he fills us, he fills us to overflowing so that that goodness he's giving to us, that patience, that kindness, that mercy he's showing us and we just sang about, it overflows us into the lives of those around us. So he's saying, hey, look, even if we had 200 days pay, and Lord, by the way, yeah, check with Judas. He's the treasurer, by the way. That's gotta be weird. But uh, anyway, uh, they didn't really have enough to just get everybody a little bit. And that was never his plan anyway. One of the disciples, and we read it, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who, by the way, was always bringing people to Jesus. Go through, look for his name. You'll find it's consistent. Every time he shows up, he's got somebody with him. And he says, hey, we got this kid over here. He's got five loaves. They're little loaves. They're barley. And there's a couple fish. But what are they among so many? We already saw a great example of this. Whenever we're confronted with something that's clearly beyond us, impossible for us, we need to bring it to Jesus and do whatever he says. That's what they did in the very first recorded miracle here in John's gospel. And that's what's going to happen here. They find the lad, he's got his lunch, he's willing to give it up. And uh, as he does, Jesus, to create an air of expectation, Jesus says, make the people sit down. It's not just an air of expectation, expectation. it's, it's order. And, and God is not the author of confusion. Everything he does is orderly. And uh, we're not all on that same page. Many of the things we do, not exactly lining up or not done in the way he would do them if he were in charge. And by the way, when we call him Lord, he's in charge. We just need to remember that when we set out on any task. We'll make him sit down and there was much grass in the place. And the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now there's women and children there as well. It's a beautiful, just a natural bowl that looks down from a high vantage point. And it's, it's very gradual. So lots of room for lots of people, thousands here. And beyond them, there would have been the beautiful uh, Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus would look out on them and past them and that serene and gorgeous uh, setting. And so, so they bring the fish and the loaves to him. And he took the loaves, verse 11, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they'd seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So the picture, just to summarize it, and maybe add a couple things from the other gospels to flavor it. 
They give the bread to Jesus and the fish. He blesses it. He breaks it. He distributes it to his disciples. And some of you are well aware, but some hearing it for the very first time. Everybody there was fed, but not just fed, satisfied, satiated, glutted is a literal translation of the word that's used here in John. They all ate more than they needed. And when it was over, those five barley loaves now left 12 baskets of leftovers. That is the ultimate feast. And, and so in the midst of all that, some were confused. It said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Other issue as it relates to our service for the Lord, everybody ate, everyone was filled, everyone had enough. There are 12 baskets of leftovers. I imagine that's one for each disciple. And then here's the other thing, the disciples who participated in this, while the miracle wasn't theirs, it was his, it took place in his hands. They saw the miracle. They didn't just get fed, they fed the hungry multitudes. They participated in a work that's impossible for man, but nothing's impossible for Jesus. Well, therefore, verse 15, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now listen, Jesus is the king of Israel. And there were some saying, hey, we got to make this guy king. Why? Well, he heals our sick. He feeds us when we're hungry. He rebukes the religious leaders who were hypocrites. He could certainly deal with Rome. They thought, hey, let's just make him king. The kingdom will be established and we'll live in it happily ever after. The problem was twofold. It wasn't the time and it wasn't the place. They couldn't make him king. He was already the king of kings and Lord of lords, king of the Jews in their minds. And that's accurate as well. But they wanted to, well, coronate him, crown him, lift him up. And he's like, nope, that's not gonna happen. Why? Because God had predetermined the way, the time, the place. It will be in John 12 when we get there. It'll happen in Jerusalem on a day we celebrate as Palm Sunday. He'll ride into Jerusalem. The people will be calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It means save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. That's gonna happen, but it can't happen now. And Jesus knows that. So he just gets away from all that. And as he does, verse 19 says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. We know from the other gospel accounts, he sent them across to the other side. And he went up as was often his habit to spend some quiet time with the father alone in prayer. There was no way for him to do that surrounded by all those people and even surrounded by his disciples who always had questions and they spent a lot of time arguing. And you know how hard it is to concentrate when kids are arguing? Here's grown men arguing. Oh, which of us is going to be greatest? Well, it ain't going to be him. And I think it could be me. And that was their common discussion. Jesus said, you guys get in the boat, argue out there. I'm going to go up the hill. And I'm going to spend some time with the father. Well, some time goes by. They're out in the middle of the lake and a storm arises. And it says uh, they got into the boat. They went toward Capernaum. It was dark. Jesus had not come to them. Verse 17 and verse 18 says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It's not obvious at first, but actually four miracles take place here. And you do need the other gospel accounts, but we don't need to go to them. Just know the first is that Jesus walked on water. And that's the one that John is emphasizing. That's the one that he will say, these signs are given that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that, that believing you'd have life in his name, his purpose for writing his gospel. So, so Jesus walks on water, but I don't know if that should have really surprised anyone. He's God. He made the water. He knows how it works. He can override or overcome whatever, you know, water is to us. He's the creator and he's able to do what no one else can do. But not only that, he's able to enable us to do what we can't even do. And Peter starts to understand that. And Peter will say, it's not here, but it happens here. And, and uh, he'll say, hey, if it's really you, call to me and tell me to come out. And Peter, well, he hears the Lord say, come on out. And Peter steps out of the boat and he walks on water. So Jesus walking on water, okay, you're God. But Peter walking on water, that's like us doing it. And, and listen, we make fun of Peter, not all of us, but most of us have thought, yeah, the guy took his eyes off Jesus and he sunk. By the way, he prays the shortest prayer in scripture. One of my favorites, help Lord. It works. He doesn't need us to get into any long, flowery, involved prayer. Oh, Lord, look, look, look. by the time we get to the fourth word, we're drowning. But he cries out. Jesus reaches out, lifts him, takes him into the boat with him. And then he's like, why? Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, he doubted because he took his eyes off the Lord. He saw, it says he saw that the wind was boisterous. He could see the effects of the wind. The waves were rising up and, and all of a sudden he's out in the midst of it. It looks different from the boat than when you're in it. It's like if you go to the beach and you see the waves and you're like, I could body surf that. It doesn't look that big till you get out there. And then all of a sudden, either the waves get way bigger or you realize they were bigger than you thought they were. But anyway, all that to say, Peter walked on water. He begins to sink. He cries out to the Lord. The other two miracles related to this is, is that um, Jesus stills the storm with a word. It's the same word from when he speaks to demons and he just says, stifle, shut up, be quiet, and, and uh, you know, cease. And that's what he did. He told the wind to just stop it, calm down. And the wind ceased and the waves stopped and the, the sea was like glass. And then in the midst of that, they're all, as, as that happens, they're all the way to the other side. They're, they're not all the way. They didn't roll the rest of the way. They just arrived there where they were heading. There is one more thing that I noticed. Maybe I've noticed it in the past, but it stood out to me this time. And that is John, who was so competitive with Peter, never mentions that Peter got out of the boat and walked. You think he would have mentioned it just to say, yeah, but he started to drown and Jesus had to save him. But he doesn't even bring it up. And I'm thinking that that competitive thing, you never fully get over it. You know, there are parents today that don't want their kids to compete because they just think competition is bad for kids. I want to say if your kid's competitive, they're going to compete no matter what. It's not sinful to compete. You just, you don't live to win. That's what you have to teach them. It's not about winning. It's about doing your best. Competition causes us to do our best. And we don't all do our best when we're not going to be doing that. So all of that to say this, 
Whatever's going on with John, he knows the other gospel writers have mentioned it. So he's like, why would I bring it up? Why do I need to bring it up? I outran him, by the way. He'll mention that over and over and over. So he walked on water. Who needs to know that from me? Well, anyway, verse 22, the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no boat there, except the one that his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And the people themselves saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples. They also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, listen, before we look at his answer, it's a completely benign question. Hey, you know, when did you get here? When did you come here? How did you get here? Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, which verse two said, that's what they were seeking him for a day earlier. Not because you saw the signs now, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He busts them on their motivation because he's like, you guys just want more grub. You're not here because of the signs. We dealt with that yesterday. You're here because you want another meal. And he takes the opportunity to tell them that there's the temporal and there's the eternal. There's the natural and there's the spiritual. And they need to take their focus off of the first and put it on the second. Do not labor. It's literally stop laboring and it's present tense which means that, that it's an, a present tense imperative, by the way, which means it's a command. Stop laboring for the food which perishes. What's the food that perishes? All the food we eat. But he says, instead, for the food which endures to everlasting life. What food endures to everlasting life? He'll go on to tell us, which the son of man will give you because the father has set his seal on him. He's saying, put your focus on the spiritual, take it off of the natural and embrace the gift of everlasting life. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They wanna get in on some of this supernatural stuff and they go, well, what do we need to do? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Not even your work. And by the way, don't worry about those others. They follow. But he's saying this is the one work that needs to happen first. And that's that you put your faith in Jesus. Therefore, they said, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And clearly they're still thinking about lunch because they say our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what can we do? Believe, he says, they ask for a sign, a work to convince them and they mention bread from heaven. So Jesus said to them, most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I like how he moves from the past to the present. He could have said, Moses didn't give you that bread. That was my father who gave you that bread. Moses was just the guy standing in the gap and telling Pharaoh, well, he didn't even want to talk. We're in that passage, in that section where they're before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron on our Wednesday night study. And it is amazing to go through it. But anyway, he just says, 
Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gives you, present tense, here and now, the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the heart of his message to them and to us. My father provides, he provides me, and I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In Matthew 6:33, Jesus tells us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, this is the same point that Pastor Sam made from our text today when he told us that Jesus wants us to take our focus off of the natural and put it on the spiritual and embrace the gift of everlasting life. When we go through life and our focus is on the natural, two things can happen. We can be drawn into temptation, temptation for things that are contrary to holiness. And second, we can begin to worry. We worry whether or not we are going to be able to get the things that we need and we desire. Both temptation and worry can draw us away from God and his plans for us. Seeking first the kingdom of God is when our desires are for the things that God wants us to have. And secondly, it is trusting that God will provide them outside of our best efforts to do so. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.